You're listening to Unleashed by Nonstop Dogware, the podcast where you get inspirational stories and useful knowledge from dog lovers all over the world. This is your host, Jeanette. We wanted to involve our listeners in today's episode, so we're doing a Q&A with dog trainer Steve Walsh from McCann Dogs. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? Well, good morning over here. I guess good afternoon over there. Yeah, it's afternoon for us. <laughs> you had dog for more than 30 years and taught classes for the last 15. Is that right? Yeah, at least, um, you know, they've been a part of my life since I was a, 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 a little guy and always something that I've had a lot of, a lot of fun with and training was always the most important thing to me and actually it was the most fun more so than anything else <laughs> what kind of dogs have you had uh, throughout the years oh well my, my first dog when i was a kid was a black standard poodle and she was the worst trained dog ever <laughs> so she taught you a lot i, she, I guess yeah, she was the dog that when you walked out the front door, you had to try and close the door really fast so she wouldn't run away. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I think that probably started me on this idea of wanting to train dogs. But since then, I've had several Irish wolfhounds and whippets and uh, um, border collies and things. I have two border collies right now and, uh, and an Irish wolfhound currently in the house. And you've been competing in different kinds of dog sports? Yeah, I've uh, done a fair bit of lure coursing um, with the with the sighthounds and stuff, and now my main focus is agility. And um, I've uh, been lucky enough to represent Canada overseas, the European Open, and national events around here as well. So been uh, been very very lucky to be able to do the things that we've done. That's good. So you have a lot of experience. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always things to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the one thing I've learned is that, that I've never I never know enough. So I'm always trying to learn more. That's good. And our listeners seems to be eager to learn more as well. We asked everyone on Instagram to send us their questions and we got a mm-hmm. lot actually. It seems to be a lot of excited dogs out there because there was a bunch of questions uh, similar to this first one from uh, Pinia Corpola. Do you have any okay. tips on how to train your dog to not get too crazy and excited before a training or a race? Yeah, that um, get dogs that are stimulated and excited, especially when it comes to training, are, are things that I that I love because I want a dog that's eager and I want a dog that's motivated to do the things that we want to do, whether it be you know agility or just some retrieving or some field trials or or um, any of the sledding um, um, uh, sort of sports and things like that. I will say before any of the sports stuff starts, though, I spend a lot of time with my younger dogs just near the environment. And the reason I say near is if they're right in it. We all know that the events, uh, especially the trials and events and, and races and things, are very high energy. And if I can start to spend a little bit of time getting them comfortable in the area, doing basic things, you know, having them sit, having them lie down, having them walk with me before I ever get to trialing. Um, that can really help down the road. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that older dogs can't do that. We spend a lot of time trying to simulate a trial environment, you know, trying to simulate that energy level because it is so different and teach our dogs to listen. Um, And the more they can do that, the easier that becomes. One thing I don't want to ever do is try and get rid of that interest and excitement from the dogs. I really like it but I really want to make sure that they can focus on listening to me in spite of that excitement. And that's a, that's a bit of a challenge to do, but um, like anything else, if I do it in a manner that my dog can be successful, that can um, help in those situations. That's for sure. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a, a, a challenging thing to do, but it's definitely worthwhile focusing on. So do you start when the dog is a puppy and you start from a distance and then gradually work your way closer or how do you? Yeah. Do 
Yeah, you know, distance is a is a, a really big benefit. So, you know, if you're right next to something and we already said, you know, let's say the dog's not even listening because you're right next to the start line and there's dogs screaming and barking and all sorts of things, going 40 or 50 feet away can really, really help to bring that puppy's mind sort of back in and allow us to listen. And I sort of think about my dogs as having a bubble around them. And and when they're puppies, of course, that bubble is quite large, that anything that comes within that bubble really affects them and really distracts them. But the more adept that they get at learning to listen with those distractions, the smaller that bubble gets and the more they can focus. But it also starts with, with doing like simple basic behaviors, you know, simple things that I want them to do. And really letting them know what to do instead of what not to do. Oftentimes we, you know, and this is sort of one of our big training philosophies is I don't want to spend a lot of time telling my dog what not to do, but I want to spend time telling them what to do and then showing them how to do it to be successful. So if I can give you something that you know how to do when you're an excited mindset, it becomes easier for me to prevent the things that I don't want to do happening. So basically I replace behaviors that I don't want with behaviors that I do. And that, that, that's a bit of a challenge, but that distance that you talked about is really helpful in doing so. Just having a dog sit on a loose leash near that excitement, you know, might not happen 10 feet away, but at 50 feet away, it can be really, really successful. And then I would move slowly closer, building on that success. And if your dog is starting to fail, then you just go one or two <clears throat> steps back again? Yeah, I move back. I move back to where, again, they can be successful. You know, um, teaching a dog to offer me um, some focus when they're excited is another thing that I really spend a lot of time doing. So if I'm an excited dog and they're, let's say, watching, you know, standing next to an agility ring going nuts, and if I just happen to, you know, move away, just encourage the dog to move away with me, I'm not going to tell them leave it. I'm not going to tell them no or anything negative. I'm just going to wait. And oftentimes in waiting, they will offer to look and offer a little bit of focus. And that's a great way to build um, a little bit more in uh, the idea in the dog's mind that when you're excited by things, you need to look at me for direction, not continue to focus on looking at that thing that is exciting to you. I want my dogs to feel free to look around the world. Um, I don't want to expect them to stare at me the whole time, but anytime they do offer me some focus and especially anytime they offer me calm focus, then I start to offer a lot more rewards. And I simply build on that idea that, yep, those exciting things are there, but I'm still here and all the good stuff comes from me. Do you prefer to reward with the toy or with treats? Mm, every dog's different. And people get so caught up on the thing, whether it's the toy or the food. I want my dogs to think that I am a reward, all of me. Whether it's a, a piece of kibble, whether it's a toy, whether I'm running and playing with them, whether I'm simply talking to them, um, I want my dogs to think of me as a reward. So and all that stuff is just uh, the icing on the cake, so to speak. You know, the more that they think I'm fun, the more they'll pay attention to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Staying in a starting and area, it can be quite challenging because in some sports, you have a specific time. You know that at this time I'm going to run. But in other sports, it depends on what's happening on the course. Sometimes you have to wait for a long time, sometimes a shorter waiting time. So it's it can be quite hard to uh, to train this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, you know, you know, with 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 um, uh, a lot of the sports that you do and a lot of the events that you've been to with agility that sometimes, you know, the setups to go into the ring are very different from event to event. Sometimes you can be on the other side of the field and there's a, a sound system where they call your name when you need to go. Other times you're waiting in line, you know, 30 or 40, 50 dogs long. And, you know, that's where spending time away from those events working on that ability to focus and that ability to settle can really go a long way when you really need it to. Because of course the other side of that is 
at those events, we're also worked up. We're also, you know, nervous or focused or, or um, you know, a little bit more on edge. And, and that goes right to the dogs. They, they, they read that as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, sort of conditioning us both to be calm and, and, uh, and sort of collected can really make a big difference. You know, again, starting away from those events and then working towards it. You know, the other thing that we really try and do, we often set up sort of fake trials or we play games in our, in our training to put pressure on because pressure changes how we interact with the dogs. Pressure changes how the dogs react to it. So, you know, we'll make silly bets or silly games or play music really loud or do something else that sort of simulates in that environment to really um, have the dogs work through it. You know, maybe it's a challenge for if you don't run clean, then you have to do 50 push-ups or, you know, something something where there's a little bit a little bit something on the line that we have to really work towards and that makes it fun too. Mm. And when you are at competitions, would you use the chance to do like, uh, I like to call it false starts, to pretend that you're preparing for a start, but then you don't start so that the dog never knows when it's an actual start and when it's just a game? Um, Yeah, you know, I I sort of go on the adage, train like a trial. So at events, you know, know, whether it be at at sort of your, your race starts where there's um, times to warm up and then sit and wait and then warm up and sit and wait. I, by all means, I would do the same routine every single time, whether I'm starting or not. So that, yeah, the dog isn't sure whether we are actually going to run or not, but they are in tune to the excitement level. That's, that's always a great idea. Mm. And we got another question that's uh, a bit related to this, uh, I would say. My dog is perfect in training, but won't listen to me at competitions. What can I do about <laughs> this? <laughs> well, to me, that. Sounds like pretty much the same question, you know, slightly different results. It, it, it has more to do with the environment. So one of the things that I hear from students all the time is they're, they're often surprised when their dog doesn't, you know, follow something that we ask them to do. And the first thing they say is, oh, my dog knows this. And my answer to them is, well, no, your dog doesn't know it in this second, in this environment. It may know it in your kitchen, it may know it in your yard, it may know it, you know, at the field or the place where you practice all the time, but in this particular environment, your dog doesn't know it. And that really sort of highlights the facts about about how much environment plays a role in dogs learning and dogs' ability to perform things. So in that particular second, does the dog know it at that particular second in time? No. But it's the stimulation again that we talked about in sort of the last question that's overruling the dog's understanding of, of uh, what they're asking them to do. We really want to sort of, I would with that particular dog, personally, if it were my dog, I wouldn't be doing any competitions at that particular point. I would spend a fair bit more time spending time around competitions without actually running. But again, build, trying to build on a little bit more um, verbal control in those situations and a little bit more focus. And I guess consistency is also quite important when it comes to these kind of issues. Well, here's the other thing. If I have a dog that's already proven itself to, you know, be more distracted in those environments and I continue to be able to, to give it, you know, we talked about rewards briefly, um, running agility for my dogs is a reward. Um, but if my dog is rewarding itself by not listening and doing all the things that it wants to do, I'm not doing anything for their um, their ability to be successful and be more focused on me on course. If I continue to trial and continue to let those things happen, it's not doing a whole lot for uh, our relationship and our goals overall. Um, one of the things that we really try and do is take away our dog's ability to rehearse things incorrectly. If my dog never does anything wrong because I've set it up that way, they don't know how to do anything but be right. Things like, you know, let's say we're, we're out and I'm out with a young dog and I have an adolescent dog right now and 
Um, he listens really, really well, but there are still those times where he sort of looks around and says, oh, do I really want to listen to you or do I not? And that's part of it. But one of the things that I will make sure that I do at that point is if he, if I see any sort of hesitation in him to respond, I'm, A, I'm never mad at him. But what I would do is I would take, take a step back and I will, you know, give him a little bit less freedom. So put a long line on him, do something where I have a direct connection to him to simply prevent him from making the mistake. If I can prevent my dog from not listening to me at an event or a race or a trial or whatever it happens to be, they never learn that they can. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, go, going back and sending them up for, for, uh, for success can really, really help with that. We have another uh, question that's also kind of the same, uh, same alley. Uh, when my husky gets overexcited or wants to play, she starts biting. I'm desperate. Mm. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. What would you uh, do do with this dog? Um, you know, you know, biting in and of itself to me is 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 a hard fast rule in my house. I do not allow it. Um, I kind of want to qualify that though. You know, we know dogs aren't really biting us. This dog sounds like it's more redirecting its its energy than anything else. Okay, if it was really biting this person would be quite hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it is a bratty behavior, but I don't, it's another thing that I definitely do not let go. Now, um, this to me sounds like, again, a dog who's a little bit overexcited and because it can't go and join in the fun or, or whatever it happens to be, it's simply redirecting onto the leash and then usually onto the person and jumping up and all that kind of thing. Um, first things first, I would, I would move that dog away from that excitement in that particular second. With a dog like that though, I would actually spend a little bit of time away from those exciting things, teaching a little bit different skill. And that skill is to settle. <laughs> and it seems kind of silly, but I spend a lot of time with my dog, giving them permission to play and then teaching them to settle. And giving permission to play and teaching them to settle. So I teach them to get high when I ask them to, but I also, in the process of doing that, teach a bit of an off switch or a bit of a settle command so that they understand that there's value for both. The way I do it is again, away from all sort of distracting things. Um, you know, they give a, they get permission with the, you know, I call it playtime. Okay. Playtime. And we run around, we have fun. We are crazy. Um, the dog's leash is in my hand and we're simply just kind of goofing around. Then I change my body posture and I will stand up. It's a nice and tall on a loose leash. They'll be settle, which is sort of my yellow light. Uh, and then sit, which is red light. The point of doing that is if I can install that subtle switch away from exciting things. When things are exciting, it has more value to the dog. So when I, you know, am, am taking that young dog and I'm playing with them away from things, I stand up tall, subtle sit. The moment they sit, my praise is calm, my reward is calm, but it's long and it's drawn out. So I spend a lot of time giving them lots of love and lots of um, praise and pet calmly. Okay, so not only am I I'm teaching them to calm their bodies, but I'm also sort of praising calm and keeping that calm. I don't want to say, uh, I don't want to go crazy and let them be excited again. I really want to make a big deal for the calm behavior. If the dog can only sit for like one second and then it starts jumping around again, what would you do? So there's, there's, there's a great question. This starts with maybe a second or two. I will say though, that if I ask my dog to sit and they get out of the sit, I, I will just place them back in the sit, you know, not just just make it happen. I'm not mad at them by any stretch of the imagination. But I build a lot of value for that calm praise. Now, if I have a dog that's struggling with holding sit in like a sit position, um, I might 
up my frequency of reward. Now by that, I might mark it with my yes and then reward two or three or four or five times building a little bit of duration with some food. That's a great, a great place to put food in your training. And then again, I give my dogs a clear release word. My dogs learn that they're not allowed to get up out of a sit or a down or a stand or whatever position until I release them with okay. Um, some people use break or release. There's all sorts of things, but they learn that pretty darn quickly. And that gives me time to do both things. A, I again, start to build value for the saddle and that stationary position. And then I bring them high again, and then I bring them low. And I play that sort of game back and forth of play and saddle. And it really translates over to things like this. Now, that's, again, something that I would do away from all those exciting things because, again, I don't want my dog rehearsing, jumping and nipping and biting and doing all those things. That's a big no-no-no in my house. <laughs> you know, my, my current wolfhound, who's the smallest one I have or have had, uh, she's about 130 pounds. Uh, and I have a six-year-old son. And uh, nipping and biting and jumping is not allowed. It's a rule. You do not do it. So that means we're, we are very clear, uh, you know, with young dogs about having leashes on in the house and, and um, making sure we prevent those certain situations. But back to this husky idea, spending time teaching a settle and teaching that command away from things translates into, translates into more exciting things. Now, again, it can't instant, it's not going to instantly fix it but it is going to help to sort of build build that idea of an off switch okay sometimes sometimes doing the opposite of what dogs or what we're trying to get dogs to do can really help so my one border collie let loved to bark in her crate loved it she would she would just bark in her crate just because it sounded great and um she was also the dog that when you went over and asked her to be quiet she would but then you'd turn around and you'd walk away and you get two steps away and she'd bark one more time you know, and that feeling where she just wanted to get the last word in. So anyway, I spent a lot of time teaching her to bark on command outside of her crate and then teaching her to be quiet outside of her crate and building lots of value for that quiet command away from that crate situation. So I removed the crate from the situation and changed it and changed the approach so that I was teaching her to be excited and make noise, but then I was building much more value and higher value rewards for her being quiet. Though, so, and for her particular, in her particular case, she she loved toys more than anything. But what it allowed me to do was install a command, a quiet command, and put a ton of value for it, so that when I then took it and put it in the crate in that other environment, she understood what it meant. She understands that that there was a lot of value for it, and she was able to generalize and put that in practice in her crate and fix the marking problem in the crate. But it had nothing to do with the crate when I fixed it. It was away from the crate. <laughs> so, you know, having to change the environment to get some success can really help. And that leads us to the next question, actually, from uh, Hiking Buddies. Best tips to stop the dog from barking when he sees people? What kind of barking? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, like, there's there's lots of different types of barking. There is, like, barking, hi, how are you? There's barking, I'm a little bit worried. And there's barking, if you come near me, I'll bite you. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what kind yeah, of barking so... it is, is actually important to find out well, how to solve yeah. it. Yeah, because... If my dog is excited by people, well, let's let's go back. Um, first things first, uh, my dog's job when people are around is, is unless we're moving or walking by, like if I have to stop, let's say I want to talk to a neighbor or something, my dog's job is to sit at my side, my young dogs. My old dogs can hang out around. So their job is just, just come to my side and sit in what we call a control position or sit at my left-hand side. That starts from a very early age. They get rewarded a lot for that position. The other thing is, I'm also pretty specific about what people do when they come in to greet my dogs. So I don't know how it is over there, but over here, 
everybody really thinks that they can just come and pet your dog. And, you know, not that, you know, any dogs are bad, but in my opinion, you know, our dogs are ours. They're not public property and people shouldn't be able to just rush up to a dog. So I very much sort of look at my dog and say, well, what are you, what's your sort of mindset? Are you able to have this person come and pet you or not? And I might sort of stop the person maybe five or 10 feet back and just say, hey, hold on, please. Let me just see if I can work my dog a little bit. So that's the first thing. I don't let people come into my dog all the time because I also don't want my dog thinking that every person they see is going to pet them, right? Because that, that can create a bit of a problem. You know, if I have a dog that has rehearsed that every person that they see, they get to A, pull on the leash, B, they get to pull on the leash to that person, and then C, that person pets them and gives them that physical reward, what am I rewarding? I'm rewarding a dog that's excited, that learns to pull on the leash to get what it wants. Yeah. Good luck going to the <laughs> you know, city with, with that kind of dog. <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly. And that's, you know, people, people don't realize that, that dogs are learning all the time whether we are actually teaching them or not, we need to look at all the things that are happening. So back to this barking dog, the question of what kind of barking really does come into play, as you know, is it excited to see that person? So, and if that's the case, first things first, I'm not going to let that person come in and pet the dog because the dog also learns that if I bark, the demon will come and see. <laughs> so um, I spend a fair bit more time teaching, again, an alternate behavior. Anytime there's people around, instead of jumping up on them, Parking, pulling on the leash, your job is to sit at my side. And as long as you know how to do that, then once you're capable of doing that in a quiet environment, then I might introduce people. One of the very first things we teach our classes in all of our family dog obedience programs is that sit at your left hand side. And it goes back to formal obedience of dogs sitting nice and tight in heel position. But it gives the dogs a great home base. And we spend a lot of time proofing that by, first of all, teaching them how to hold that sit, rewarding them for holding the sit. And then having people just walk by while that dog holds the sit. And then having people maybe walk by and stand close while that dog holds the sit. And again, the whole time they're holding the sit, we're coaching them or rewarding them and doing all those things. But it's several weeks until we actually go in and pet the dogs. But we, what we want our dogs to understand is that that home base is the left-hand side, and that's where everything should be when new people are around you. And that takes care of a lot of the excitement. Usually, it's, this, this to me sounds like an excited dog that wants to you know go and say hi to people because People come in and pet it all the time. <laughs> now, if, you know, that, that, that's sort of what I would do to train it. But what I would do in the situation where it is barking is I would move away from that person. Say, hey, good to see you. I'll talk to you later. Dog's a little bit excited. Again, making space. Because that person could probably be, you know, 50 feet away. At 25 or 30 meters away, that dog could, could most likely not be overexcited. But all of a sudden at 10 meters, that dog is pretty excited because that person is quite close. And then, of course, at five meters, that dog can't lift it at all because that distraction is too high and too close. So it goes back to, you know, the start line stuff that we had talked about or, or dogs nipping and, and biting and jumping through excitement. All those things are simple, are, are simple things of excitement but need other behaviors. So instead of being mad at them for doing those things, let's give them other behaviors to do to prevent them from doing it. That's maybe relevant for the next question as well from uh, sled dogs. How do you stop dogs from whining when they want attention? <laughs> um, so again, like this in, this in my class would be, you know, what's the, what's the situation and what's the scenario? You know, is the dog tied up? You know, they're in their tie they're supposed to be uh, relaxing and people go by. 
um, and the dogs are whining and wiggling ready to go? Or is it, you know, you're hooking up dogs, getting harnesses on, getting ready for a race? It would sort of depend on the, on, on the situation. There are, as you know, some dogs that are more, some dog breeds that tend to be more vocal than others. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just having a sip of I, coffee. I here. have two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I have to look at that a little bit and decide how much of a thing I want to make of it. You know, everybody has their own sort of question. It sounds like this person is is having it, I, I'm guessing, when they are about to go run or, or when, you know, they're about to go out to do something. I might, again, try and work a slightly different behavior in that situation. And that may be simply just to go and lie down. That may be alternate, easier behavior. But if in that second, I want my dog high because we are going to run, I might not make that that big a deal about it. The only thing I would do is I would make sure that if I'm getting something I don't like, so let's say I'm getting really high whining, I definitely wouldn't let anybody go in and pet them and reward them at that particular moment. I would, you know, just ignore them. When I see a little bit more calm behavior, then I might go a little closer. If I get a little bit of stimulation or excitement at that point, then I might move a little further away. You know what I mean? I sort of play the game and I only go closer to them when I see them a little bit more calm or hear that they are calm, like they're not, they stop whining or something. And you can sort of play that game. You know, we know when our dogs are excited. You know when your dog's sitting calmly or lying calmly versus when they're trying so hard to hold position, yet they're vibrating in place. When I have excitement in dogs like that, I very rarely will pet them or really, really praise them when they're excited especially in working for calm behaviors, I'll wait until I get that split second of settle and then I can calmly praise them and sort of reward from there. But if they don't, I just move away. So think, think of it like you're sliding in and out as the dog's excited. And then we have another question that's quite uh, relevant to the time we're in right now. Because of mm -hmm. quarantine, my dog is used to me being at home. How can I prepare mm -hmm. him for when I have to go back to work and he suddenly needs to be alone again? I cannot leave yeah. my house, so I find it hard to prepare him. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah, it's it's a it's kind of a challenge right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have uh, we have a lot of questions. We, we've got some in our program. We have you know several hundred students each month um, that come through with young dogs, and and we've had to switch uh, a good majority of them because you know of what's going on to online classes. And this has actually been a pretty common question. You know, my biggest suggestion would be to try and maintain a bit of routine and separation. Now, what I mean by that is I will do some things for my dogs, and, and even my older dogs have crates that they use, and, and I use them all the time for, you know, not that they're not trustworthy in the house, but um, teaching my dogs to be comfortable in crates is a really, really big thing for me when we go to events or if I go away somewhere with the dogs or, you know, they have to go to the vets and stay there. So that to me is a really valuable tool and that can sort of help in these situations mm. because I will do a little routine with my dog where we get up, we have our normal breakfast, we go for our normal walk, we come home. And then when I you know, go onto my computer to start working, I will put the dog away in another room in the crate and I make it like I'm going to work. Mm. So we actually <laughs> you know, close sort of, the door between you and uh, everything. Yeah. 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 I absolutely do. Because if I, you know, now again, every dog is different, but if I have a, if I have a dog that's really uh, relying on me, I will start to make sure I have that physical separation just so that we avoid that kind of thing. I will say that I think dogs are also really adaptable and, you know, the reality of people going back to work is going to be harder on the people than it is on the dogs. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> I, I, think, I think a lot of the dogs are going to be quite happy to get their sleeping time back. So I think, uh, I think overall it will not be a bad thing. But if, you're, you know, if this person was, was worried about it, then yeah, I would use the crate. 
I would put them in it, give them a bone, tell them go lie down, and then they could go and do whatever they, they want to do for a few hours and then come back and, oh, hi, I'm home. Good to see you. You know, pretend like you were gone. <laughs> Sounds good. And then, yeah, gradually extend the time you're away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just just build just build on that. But there has to be some sort of uh, some sort of physical separation at that point. And again, to me, I'm a big fan of dogs being comfortable in crates, and that's the easiest way, of course, to create that separation is to put your dog in a crate. Um, I it's one of the best things that you can ever teach a dog, in my opinion. And we have another question. My dog freaks <laughs> out when he sees cars. He totally blocks me out, even if I have mm -hmm. yummy treats. What to do? Mm -hmm. And the owner po points out this is not a herding dog, uh, a herding <laughs> breed. <laughs> so that should not be the issue because uh, people with herding breeds might know that that could uh, could be a herding it's problem. It's pretty common. Um, it's not necessarily a herding problem in, in, in my mind. I mean, certainly it is pretty prevalent in the herding breeds of course but but again it all has to do with stimulation and usually with the cars it's the sound and the motion right there's the big whoosh and i'd be willing to bet that that um this particular dog again just throwing it out there you know if a if a, an excited dog ran by quickly or something else went by quickly that would also sort of spark its interest it's probably more the motion than anything else You know, again, this is a situation, and again, I don't know the setup for for this dog in terms of what they what they have in terms of space. Um, I like to spend time again teaching um, what I call a leave it command, and leave it has a very specific meaning. It means look away from what you're looking at and check back in with me. Look at me. It doesn't mean stare at me. <clears throat> and the reason I qualify that is people want to do something that requires the dog to look at you the whole time. But we need to think about this from the dog's perspective. That dog is either excited or worried or interested about whatever that thing is that's going by really, really fast. So I don't want to create tension in the dog and anxiety in the dog because they feel like they have to look at me the whole time when what they really want to do is look at that thing. What I want my dogs to do is, you know, if you see something that's really exciting, instead of reacting and running the end of the leash or pulling or anything like that, I want you to check in with me. I want you to look at me just for a second, and then I will give you direction. Because there may be times, you know, if you're hurting with our hurting people, I need my dog to lie down, and then I want need to give them permission to, you know, uh, move away or go to, go to which side or ever. You know, same thing in agility. You know, if we're on a start line, I know my dog is excited, but I want to make sure they know where they're where they're going. So teaching them to check in with me is again a, a replacement behavior now how do i do that there's well actually there's a well, we've got a couple of great videos on our youtube <laughs> channel that talk about that specifically but it becomes a really really fantastic command because let's say i'm uh, near a car or a road and a car goes by my dog sees the car coming gets excited i can tell them leave it they look at me i can praise them i can reward them and have some fun But like anything else it doesn't start near the road <laughs> it starts um i i sort of like to try and find fields or places where I can move away from the road to, you know, again, introduce cars and those sounds in a manner where both the the dog and handler can be successful. So instead of, and this is why I say it sort of depends on where the person is, because I know, you know, sometimes you're walking on a sidewalk and there's no place to go. <laughs> right there. You're kind of stuck sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So I would suggest to this particular person, find yourself a place where you can move away from Uh, the road and create some distance again the idea of a bubble around your dog teaching them the idea that focusing on you is way more valuable than reacting to cars and the more they get at that the closer you can go to the road 
So my ideal situation would be, you know, a field near a road that wasn't too busy. I simply have my dog on leash. I let them look at a car. I say, leave it. I put a little food on their nose. I turn them away and move away from that, whatever your marker is, reward and have a little bit of fun. Now, a couple of things are really important. Um, this person says that his dog, his or her dog uh, blocks him out, even if he has yummy treats. Really look into getting great treats. Anytime I'm training with food, people say, oh, I tried the best treats I can. And all they did was go to the store and buy whatever treats. You know, there are so many great treats around your house that you need to try. <laughs> Things like, you know, cheese or chicken wiener or all sorts of stuff that are way more valuable than commercial treats. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would do this when um, when the dog's hungry. Do it first thing in the morning before you've given the dog breakfast. Take advantage of those kind of times when your dog is more apt to be focused on food. And then again, as the dog gets better at it, I can A, move close to the road, B, have less food to lure. But because this to me is teaching a new command to this dog, I need to show the dog how to do it. So this is where the use of food is pretty important. Now you asked me sort of right off the bat, do I prefer using food or toys? Every dog is different. But when I'm teaching a dog something new, if I can use food, it allows me to control the distraction and keep the dog a little calmer. So it works really, really well because... I want to be able to give my dog a command and show them how to respond to it instead of expecting them to know how to respond to it. So I would say leave it. I would use some food to turn them away. Yay, praise them, move away, uh, reward them several times. And I would do that 10, 12, 14 times, um, you know, let's say 100 meters away. And then I might go to 75 meters away and then 50 meters away and see how the dog still responds. And if they're struggling, then go further away from that again. But I want my dogs to feel free to look around the world. Okay, but what I want them to be able to do is when I ask you to, to check back in with me to do it pretty darn quickly. And that really helps with things like cars because once my dog is comfortable with this, the moment I see them looking at a car as we're walking down the street, hey, leave it, you're fine. Just very matter of fact. So instead of tensing up waiting for them to go, I spent the time installing the behavior and then I can be calm and direct with them. And it really sort of helps transition and sort of they, they can generalize that really, really easily once they have a solid foundation. But it does take some repetition. People think that you can do this one or two times and the dog will understand it. No, most, most dogs don't. <laughs> they might understand it in that second, in that place, but they don't understand it everywhere and every part of their life. Okay, and that's where, the, that's where the consistency and repetition comes through. Perfect. That was the last uh, <laughs> question for now. I've learned a lot and it seems like, yeah, yeah the same things goes for most questions, actually. So. <laughs> you know, all of, all of these questions sort of fell into one little vein. Yeah, yeah, and, they did. Um, um, they're not uncommon things. I mean, one of the things that we do, we spend a lot of time in our, our program teaching dogs to listen through distraction. Mm. And I don't know, then I'll use our agility classes for an example. Um, our agility classes are pretty hard to get into because we have a really, really high expectation for verbal control. We will have up to 10 dogs at a time in the arena running at the same time. So dogs have to listen really, really well for safety. And let's face it, for teaching agility, I don't want a dog that's not listening to me when they're learning yeah. how to do, to do agility. And you know, until they can do that, it's not to their benefit to try and do a lot of these sports. We want to make sure that we have that solid verbal control in all those situations before I ever try and do that, those fun things. And that, that means that, you know, all these types of distractions that we've talked about today are things that we spend a lot of time trying to work through before we ever get to the sports, because that's what's going to help make it successful further down the road. That's, mm -hmm. It's one question that we ask everybody on this podcast, and that mm -hmm. is, if you had to do another sport with your dog, what would it be? Oh, 
That's a good question. Well, you, you know what? I, I, I think some of the some of the pulling sports are sort of piquing my interest now. Something with a bike or a sled. I actually we had we had a terrible winter here, and like, and I say terrible in that there was there was no snow at all. And um, but I thought about getting a kick sled for the dogs. That's probably the one I'd I'd look at. I just don't know if we have the uh, the weather for it here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go biking with the dogs, and they just run free. But uh, but the sledding stuff is really sort of piquing my interest a little bit more. So especially yeah, the more I talk to you guys. Yeah, it's good training as well. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on this uh, podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to Unleashed by Nonstop Dogware. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for guests or topics to cover, please email us at unleashed at nonstopdogware.com. You can also follow Unleashed Pod on Instagram or visit nonstopdogware.com for more content. Remember to subscribe for more episodes.